This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb, working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. This morning, I had a very interesting visitor in my house. It was my mother, Anne Ingle, and also wonderfully, for the first time I've seen her in real life for a while, the Women's Podcast co-host, Cathy Sheridan. They both came to my house and they sat at my kitchen table eating lovely pastries from nearby Cloud Cafe here in the North Strand in Dublin. And they were talking about my mother's memoir, Open Hearted which is out at the moment. And I know it's a bit nepotistic, but Anne Ingle is also a valued member of our Women's Podcast Book Club. And we hope you're going to enjoy this conversation. Even though I know the story, the whole story of my mother's life very well, I still found it a gripping interview. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Here is Anne Ingle talking about meeting my father for the first time and being charmed by him. I was only 20 and... um Yes, it was like a, a magical experience, which I'll never forget him stepping out of a car that he was hitchhiking from St. Ives. I was in Cornwall, in Newquay in Cornwall, and he stepped out of the car and um, something happened. I, I don't know. I mean, I hate to be so um, sentimental or whatever the word might be, but I, I just felt something. And I think he did, too, because his friends told me that when I had to leave him, he never stopped talking about me. So it must have been... Um, reciprocal. <laughs> so that is Anne Ingle and Cathy Sheridan coming up in a moment. Before then, we just wanted to talk about the budget. Big week this week and big for women too, because there was some good news for women and parents generally in that creches and childcare facilities were going to be giving more money to improve staff pay in return for freezing fees for parents under a new scheme announced by uh, Minister Roderick O'Gorman. So those childcare fees being frozen is, is good news. And the government hopes the move will alleviate the burden on parents by effectively freezing creche fees at a time of rising 
inflation. And there was also a huge package of investment in women's health announced, which is going to include something that's been talked about and promised for many years. Finally, free contraception is to be provided for young women from next year as part of a budget package that will see health spending rise to a record 22.2 billion And as part of a 31 million euro women's health package, there'll be access to free contraception for those between the ages of 17 and 25. And it's being provided from August. And some 10 million euro of this funding is going to be used to address period poverty, where women and girls can't afford sanitary products and for other projects too. There was some criticism of the free contraception ending at age 25, but it's definitely on the whole good news and something that's long overdue. And finally, I just wanted to mention that it's great to see Ad- Adele, the singer, back after doing one of her regular disappearing acts for a few years. And I've been reading some wonderful interviews with her in Vogue. The single Easy On Me from her new album 30 is out tomorrow. I can't wait. And she's been talking really interestingly about becoming physically stronger, lifting weights and how all of that strengthening has helped her at a dark time of her marriage breakup and trying to deal with the fallout of that, uh, especially as the mother of a young son. And I really recommend uh, her thoughts on what she calls her year of anxiety. She says it was a lot of sound baths, it was a lot of meditation, it was a lot of therapy and a lot of time spent on my own. And she says the time in the gym was key. It became my time. I realised that when I was working out, I didn't have any anxiety. It was never about losing weight. I thought if I can make my body physically strong and if I can feel that and see that, then maybe one day I can make my emotions and my mind physically strong. So she's really explaining what's led to kind of her just feeling better in herself and how, you know, all the commentary about her weight. It's just, I think it's fine. She finds it very tedious, but she gets the chance to set the record straight there. So wise words from Adele and new music from her tomorrow, which I think everyone will be delighted to hear. And now this episode, as I mentioned earlier, my mother, Anne Ingle, is our guest on the podcast today. She called over to my house to talk to Cathy Sheridan about Open Hearted, the memoir she wrote during those grim days of lockdown three. It's a book with a love story at heart. My mum met my father, Peter Ingle, when uh, she was just a young beatnik growing up in England and she was instantly charmed by the Dubliner. In the book, she charts their relationship their eight children, of which I am one, a proud one, and also my father's struggles with schizophrenia and the tragedy that visited us all when, in 1980, he died by suicide. Regular listeners will be well used to hearing the candid voice of my mother in the book club, and she doesn't disappoint here. I hope you enjoy it. This is Cathy Sheridan and Anne Ingle talking about Open Hearted. Good morning, Anne Ingle. We're sitting here in your daughter's kitchen. And you, I'm afraid, are the celebrity. (laughs) It's great to be a celebrity. I'm loving it. (laughs) What's happening? Well, all sorts of things are happening. I mean, I wrote a book and I just thought, well, that's it. I've wrote a book. But apparently you have to put yourself out there to sell the book. Penguin don't want you just to sit back and uh, rest on your laurels, as it was. I I have to just get out there and sell it. So that's why I'm getting a lot of publicity I'm not used to. But it's lovely. Old friends are coming to me and saying congratulations on the book. And so I'm really happy. You've got some great reviews. Yeah, I know. I'm not just saying that. You really have. I know. Apparently I have. Yes. Tell me. The RCE guide man, he said he wasn't going to do the review. He only picked it up accidentally. But he (laughs) found it so wonderful that he had to keep reading. Imagine that, Cathy. And who else? Well, there's the... um, 
The Independent and, of course, the Irish Times. But I thought that was just a shoe in because of Roisin, you know, but... Uh... No, I can tell you from personal experience <laughs> that is not the case. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so it's great. And then on the Twitter, you know, when people say, oh, you know, it got me through the night because I, I couldn't read anything else but your book. was It was so easy to read. And I love the easy to read book because it's not a literary book. I mean, I, I, I'm not one of those people, but at least I'm telling the story that engages people, I think, Cathy, um, and that's what's... And it's a, it's my voice, thank goodness, I actually was able to express myself with a, with my real voice, you know. And I've actually read the book on Audible, which is was a wonderful thing. It was a, a hard thing to do, but I did it. And that's a, that's a thing I did because of older people who might not be able to read, like myself. I find it very hard to read these days with the macular degeneration, so I did that too. So I'm in, I'm in a very happy place, Cathy, this morning. <laughs> you are. And can I just add, as another person over the age of, um, <laughs> let's say, 55, uh, that the font in the book is, 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 is large and, um, and I found it easy to read. Fair play to Penguin for that, you know. Fair play to Penguin for the actual look of the book. It's a beautiful book to feel and touch and, and then the big print helps. It does. And the photograph on the front of it of you is... A little bit heart-stopping. There's something, there's something wistful about it, Anne. Tell us about that photograph. That's amazing, isn't it? That was taken at a wedding, and they actually... Peter was sitting beside me, my husband, uh, but they didn't put him in the picture. They cut him out. But we, I was just sitting at the table watching the, at the wedding with a glass of wine there on the table, watching what was going on. And I must have been so intent in it. You know, it was at a wedding, somebody's wedding, 30... How many years ago? Many, many years ago. I was 30 at the time, so it's a long time ago. Lovely brunette. <laughs> yeah. Star- <laughs> staring into the distance. I know. Or at the happy bride and groom or whatever. Yes, whatever. The, the entertainment or something. I, I don't remember, really. And one of the things I loved about the book is, and, and you, in your modesty, make it sound a bit like you just talked into a tape recorder and then typed it all down. <laughs> but in fact, the structure of it is wonderful. There is a lot of joy. There is sex. And there is deep tragedy, which actually gave me a deep understanding, first of all, of how mental health issues can develop. Uh, Also insights into you and your family and how you survived something that most families would really, really struggle to come through. So we're going to start at the beginning, if you like. And what is actually a love story? Yes. So tell us a bit about meeting Dubliner Paddy. What age were you? You were a little beatnik, <laughs> loitering where you shouldn't have been, I suspect. Exactly, exactly. I was only, I was only 20 and, um, yes, it was like a, a magical experience, which I'll never forget him step, stepping out of a car that he was hitchhiking from St Ives. I was in Cornwall, in Newquay in Cornwall, and he stepped out of the car and um, something happened. I, I don't know. I mean, I hate to be so... Um, sentimental or whatever the word might be but I I just felt something and I think he did too because his friends told me that when I had to leave him he never stopped talking about me so it must have been um, reciprocal. (laughs) What did he look like? Oh my god what did he look like? Like a Greek god. He he had blonde curly hair, he was suntanned, he had the most amazing blue sparkling eyes and of course he spoke with that lovely Irish accent which I hadn't heard for I hadn't heard before, and it just charmed me. I was charmed. Charmed, charmed, charmed. That's all I can say. <laughs> and what happened next? 
What happened next was I had to go back to London because I was going to be 21 on August the 23rd and I had to leave him behind and that was really that was really bad because do you know I hadn't had too many boyfriends but this was somebody that I, I really wanted to stay with but my parents insisted I had to go back so on the train I got him back to London to celebrate my 21st with my heart broken all the time and then about four or five weeks later he phoned me he, he'd come back from he was come back to London and um the first thing he did was to phone me up and that was wonderful because there we were back together again and we never stopped seeing one another mostly every day I think from then on until we got married until you got married seven months later yes and 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 that's a few a few little events happened in between yes a little <laughs> few events yes we we um we had a very loving relationship you might say and uh then I realized that I was pregnant um which wasn't something I don't know why I didn't think about it but I didn't think about it I mean I didn't anyway Rightly or wrongly, I didn't think about it. Anyway, I got pregnant. Can I ask you about that, Anne? Because back then, I'm not not a whole lot younger than you. Um, and people of my generation in there, I'm now in my late 60s, people of my generation spent their time terrified of getting pregnant. Mm. Did this cross your mind? Unfortunately, it didn't. I have to be honest. You weren't terrified? No, I wasn't really. I just loved the man and... No, if sex was part of loving him, that's that you was were okay. Intoxicated, intoxicated. That's what yes. it was. <laughs> right. So, unfortunately, yes, I I got pregnant, and um, my father adored me. Actually, I was the youngest in the family. There's eleven years between my sister and myself, and I was always very much loved and cherished by my dad. And I couldn't bear the thought of him being upset with me. And my mother said he would absolutely go mad if he heard this. So between my brother and my mother, uh, they managed to take me um, to get an abortion, uh, what they called then, I suppose they still do, the back street abortion. Because mm, it was illegal then? It was the illegal, UK. yes, it was illegal. And, um, of course, if you had money, uh, Cathy, anything could happen. You could go to Harley Street and probably get it yeah. done sorted. But we, we weren't on that level of income, so it was a back street abortion. And were you were you... Agreeable to this, Anne? Was it? Was it? Were you with this? Well, fully. Yeah, I suppose I was. I mean, I'm, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about it. I was just told you have to have an abortion. I'd already. I was planning to go to teacher training college. Yeah. That was all set. Uh, so this would have ruined everything. So I went along with it, and uh, I. It, it's one of those things in your head you'll never forget. It was a an extraordinary. Um, it was an extraordinary event. When my brother drove me, I think it was in the late afternoon, over to this house, a very similar house to my own, a very ordinary-looking house. And I went in, and there was a, a woman there in an apron. You know, one of those wraparound aprons, I can always remember it. And um, she just told me to lay down and take off my underwear, which I did. And then she approached me with this big funnel and a big jug. And as I lay there, this liquid was poured into me, it was the most extraordinary um, feeling. I've never felt anything like it before or since. And it was, um, I, 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 she just poured this in and she said, lay there. And I laid there for about half an hour or so. And then she said, now that'll be all done now. And I got up and left the place. And my, my, my legs were shaking. I could hardly get outside the door and into the car. And that was it. And um, 
I thought that the next day the, the uh, it would be washed away and there would be nothing there. But that didn't happen, unfortunately. The abortion didn't um, work at that time. And so there I was, a few weeks later, still as pregnant as ever. And uh, and that must have been deeply distressing. It was, because I... presume I, the abortion itself was very, very painful physically. It was, it was. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, like, the next day I, I was shaking for a while. It's like your body had been assaulted, you know. But, um, yes, and then, of course, to have gone through all that and it not having worked was even worse. So now the daddy had to be told and uh, um, he was duly told and the what they called then, I, I don't know if they still do, I don't think they do anymore, shotgun wedding took place. How did your father take this? He was very, very angry with me because... Um, do you know, he had suspicions about this wild Irishman who I'd brought into the house. Um, so I don't think he was exactly surprised, but were very, very angry. But then as soon as he calmed down, he said, right, get married and that'll be OK. So that's what we did. We went and very quickly got married. We hired a You very hired quickly got married, but that had its own set of revelations because you were Protestant, uh, mm. I suspect atheist, actually, <laughs> more. Yeah, nothing more much, like. really. <laughs> but you had to go along, in order to marry Peter, who was a Catholic, you had to go along and see a priest because he had to get permission from the bishop to marry the two of you. Apparently he did, yeah. And certain things came out in the course of the conversation with the priest, Anne. Yes, then we went first of all. The first visit was grand, and then he said we'd have to ask the bishop. Then he said, come back again. We went back again. He said, it's OK. The bishop says, OK, now let's take the details down. And he said to... Uh, Peter, what's your name? And he said, Peter Ingle. But I had been calling him Patrick Byrne up until that. So when he told the priest that his name was Peter Ingle, I turned and said, what are you talking about? That's not your name at all. And he's kicking me under the table. I, but I didn't even feel those kicks. I just couldn't believe that he was saying this. So he said, explain later, explain later. Then the next thing the man asked him was how old he was. And he gave... Uh, an age which was three years older than I thought, uh, younger than I thought he would be. He told me he was three years older than me, but he wasn't. He was exactly the same age as me. But that was Patrick Burns' age, of course. So there was a whole confusion about that. And the priest was not impressed. He said, with this all this deceit, he couldn't possibly uh, go ahead with it. We'd have to come back again. So go away and sort this out. So that's what I did. I went away and Paddy, oh, it's Peter, of course. Peter told me, that he couldn't understand why I was so upset because um, everybody in England called him Paddy anyway, which was true. Of course, they did. And who was this Patrick Byrne? Patrick who Peter Byrne. wasn't. Yeah, I met him subsequently. Yes, he was back in Ireland, but he needed to be a Patrick Byrne to get a job when he first came over because the the job required him to be three years older than he was. So he used Paddy's um, Paddy Byrne's uh, identity. Identity. That's the word, Kathy. Yeah. Um, so the priest, in spite of all this sort of general confusion, went ahead and married you. He did in the end, yes, but not at the altar, you know, far away. It was all over in 10 minutes. And uh, at the time, I thought this was normal. But when I've been to many Irish weddings since, and I know that it was far from normal, it was get them out of the church as quickly as possible, you know, and that was that. Yes. I hope you met some kindness there, did you? In the church? Yes. No. In the priest? No. No kindness. <laughs> Just <Okay>. efficiency. <laughs> right. So the marriage happened and um, and you you obviously moved in with, with, with the man you now know as Peter. And um, you found you found you found a, a home to live in. 
Yes, we did. And, of course, in between that, Cathy, the work of the um, abortionist came to light because I actually lost the child very soon after I was married. About four weeks after I was married, I hemorrhaged and um, that was all over. Uh, yes, we, we then moved into a, a, a flat. We called them flats then. You know, I think they, they do in England more than here. We oh, we did. All, there were always flat, flats back then. Yes, yes. Yeah, we moved into a flat. It was a... A uh, floor above a lady. A lady was living in the house, and she rented us the upstairs. So we moved into that flat, and that was lovely. It was really nice to have our to be with him all the time. We both had jobs, but we'd come home in the evening and be together, and it was lovely. I was very happy. And the teacher training, though, went out the window. It did. It's gone. I'd lost that slot, and uh, I was working as a secretary and working for my brother, and he had a job, and so yeah, that was all forgotten about. And what happened next, Anne? Did you have the Did you have the the um, your first child in England, or how did your life? Oh go no, from no, then? no! Um, we came over to Ireland for a um, Christmas holiday, and I got to meet his parents for the first time, and um, I liked it here. And then we went back. Peter said he would really like to live in Ireland, so I went along with that, and we went to live in. We came over here to live, and. Settled with his mother in Bath Avenue for the first little while because we had nowhere to go except we had a bit of money saved up, you know, and we were going to um, buy a property, which we did eventually, number eight, Sandy Mount Green, which is now a plastic surgeon's. But anyway. <laughs> it would be handy if you were still there. <laughs> not for you. Oh, no, of you. course not. Not for, for you, me. But, but, but for people who know you well. <laughs> Um, and in the meantime, certain things emerged about Peter uh, that were a little bit, maybe should have should have raised some red flags. Yes, well, during that first year of our marriage in that flat in London, uh, I found out all sorts of things about Peter that I didn't know. Um, I found them out accidentally because we used to have a milkman come to us with the bottles of milk in the morning, but we never got to meet him to pay the bill and he got cross with us, so... Peter um, actually stole a bottle of milk off the doorstep on the way home one one night, very late at night. But he was apprehended by a policeman, if you wouldn't be minding. And uh, once they got him inside, all sorts of things came up about his past. They recognised that he had skipped bail somewhere else. And so he had had done uh, and had assaulted somebody. And then not only that... There was some young woman who had had a baby and it was his. So we all had to... um, And she was technically underage. She was technically underage, I found out then subsequently. So I went and he had to go to prison because he'd skipped bail before. So that's when kind of the first love letters that I ever got from him came from the prison. And they were very lovely and um, I forgave him for everything because it all happened before I knew him. I, I... I married him. I mean, I didn't marry his past. No, Anne, but there was, but, but he was 21, you're 21, and then you discovered there was actually another child. Yes. That was after the prison incident. He said, Anne, he said, I need to tell you everything now we've got this far. And I said, is there more? And apparently there was a girl in Sheffield that he'd um, had an affair, or well, not an affair, he'd, he'd loved her, I suppose, and she loved him. But anyway, I, there was a letter that she had sent him telling him how the baby was getting on and all of this. And so there was another child. So there was two I know about 
he just was wild. I mean, he came over from Ireland. He didn't know anything about contraception and he didn't care. And he saw these lovely English girls, I suppose. And, oh, well, I don't know. I'm making excuses for him, but there you go. I had him in the end anyway, so that was all I could... Uh... <laughs> you certainly did. You got him. <laughs> in every way. Um, so, Anne, so, so all these red flags flying, uh, and but you move to Ireland with him. Yes, I do. I mean... I loved the man. I mean, he—he was—he'd been irresponsible and headstrong and all that. But I knew that's the kind of man he was, and I accepted him for what he was. Yes, and so we moved to Ireland, and uh, I had—I start—I had a child then, and we bought the house. We went back to England for a little while to get some more money together because we got the house, but no furniture to put into it. And we worked and stayed with my mother's for a little while, and went back then. And I started to have. The rest of the family, the twins, came along next. And by the time you were 30, you had six children. Yes, about right, I think, Cathy. Well done for the research there. <laughs> because at one point, you left Peter when Roshin was just a babe in arms. Yes, that's right, I did. Um, this, was, this was an extraordinary thing. You know, I've told you about how much I loved him. And even when I left him, I loved him. But he, for some reason, changed his attitude towards me and... He wasn't loving, he wasn't nice to me, he was very unkind to me, and I said to myself, I'm only here because of love, and if this man doesn't love me, I'm going. So that's exactly what I did. I packed us all up, um, roasting in my arms, all around. I mean, I think the eldest was only eight or nine. <laughs> we went on that boat and went all the way to my mother in Cornwall, who very kindly, they'd retired by then to Cornwall, and she took us in. And that was a really traumatic time for me because I wasn't happy. I, I loved Ireland. I wasn't happy leaving Ireland. I wasn't happy leaving him and the, you know, the life I'd made for myself. So it was a sad time for me. And directly I got over there, of course. Peter started wanting me to come back again, decided he loved me all over again, you know. And you see, in hindsight, if you were clever enough to know these things, that was Peter's mind playing tricks on him. I didn't know at the time, but his mind was not right, um, and that's why that happened. And can I just, because your book is so profoundly honest, um, can I just throw something at you, a sentence in the book? Peter merely pleased himself and hoped for the best. He was drinking and gambling and couldn't hold down a job. Are you putting all that down to his, to his, his, his encroaching illness? Well, no, I'm not really. I'm not really doing that because I think he was a, I, he's, he was that kind of a man. But I'm not a medical person. I don't know how much of the, his personality, because you see, the, what subsequently happened was that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And um, that is a, a thing that happens to men and women in their um, 30s, late 30s. So what, what are the, all the things that happened before in his life were they to do with that? I, I cannot say for certain. I, I don't actually know. And Anne, how are you surviving in the meantime? Surviving is right. Yes, um, because you had more children. Mm-hmm. How many did you have in the end? I had eight. I had eight in the end, yes. yes. Um, so you obviously had a very lovely sex life. Very, very good sex life. <laughs> yes, and we'll get, we'll get back to sex. Um, but how are you surviving well, you Physically, see, financially. Yeah, financially it was difficult. It was always hard. And I had to try to supplement whatever Peter was getting. He was either 
working or giving up the job or he was on the dole or whatever. So I kind of uh, took up typing and cleaning and anything. And then the big thing was I took in other people's children who were going to work or to college. And that was a great source of income. Mind you, I wasn't charging the kind of prices they make these days. But (laughs) at the same time, it was a good uh, supplement to whatever I could get from Peter. Um, So I did everything I could to make money. In fact, I just had um, a letter yesterday from a man, uh, Rodney Devitt, who I used to type for for him and his children, uh, saying how much he loved the book and reminding me of, of um, our connection. So if anybody and everybody would come to the door and I'd, I'd do the bit of typing and, and that kind of thing. So I just did everything I could to make the few bob, you know. How did you manage with all the children in the house? I, well, because did you I, have to retreat into the bathroom with the, with the typewriter <laughs> or what did you do? Oh, no, that would be done in the evening when they were asleep or that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, I was multitasking as only we women can, you know. So you were, t- you were so you were minding other people's children as well as your own eight children. Yes, yes. But you, as I always say, when people say you, you had eight children, they didn't all come at once. Like you know what I mean. So you had a bit of uh, time to adjust to each different child. But they did come. The first four did nearly all come at once because Sarah, the eldest, was only two years and three months when uh, the last one of those four were born. So they, those four did actually come all at once. But the rest of them, I spread out somehow or the other. Um, you know, so it wasn't too bad. But you see, I really, really love children. I've always loved children. I've always wanted a big family and I got what I wanted. And those other children that came into the house would play with my own. And the the, the front would, room would be like a school room. And the back garden was like an obstacle course where, you know, it was just, it was a great house. It was a great house. And that's why the people brought the children there because they knew they, knew they were having a good time as well as learning a bit. I used to have these... Um, Blocks of sticks that I'd get for the fire and we'd use them to make all the letters like A's, not the circular ones, of course, you can't do that with sticks, but all the A's and T's and H's and they would be spread all over the floor. It was really a quite, quite, when I look back on it, it was a really, really good, a good experience for everybody. And Peter was out of the house most of the time because if he wasn't um, working, he was out doing something or other, you know. Oh, he was in the pub. He was in the pub a lot. Singing, yes, singing. with his absolutely <laughs> magical voice. He had one Entertaining thing. people. Entertained everybody. He entertained me too. I mean, he, he just had a talent. He was very charismatic. Um, he would never have to pay for a drink once he started singing. And that was kind of his downfall in a way because he, he, eventually he got a job. He got a taxi. I borrowed some money from my brother and we got him into the taxi because I reckoned if he was his own boss... That he couldn't be sacked, you know. That was my way of thinking. It was quite logical. And so uh, he went off and, and became a taxi driver, but he kind of sometimes forgot that he was a taxi driver. And it, it was got, it, if a passenger got in the car and they said they were going to a party, he'd say, where's the party? Well, can I come? And he'd go to the party with him. It was just that kind of a man. He was very sociable. <laughs> but uh, that didn't, you know, it wasn't good for the business, as it were. So eventually that, that went. That and business. it wouldn't be good for your heart. <laughs> for my heart. I mean, were there times when you felt murderous? <gasps> oh, I did. I did. I mean, there was one thing after the other. But I had the children and I think they kind of got me through in some ways. And I'm a very optimistic kind of person as well. That's the other thing. The new Safe Ireland Survivor Fund 
in partnership with Airbnb, enables Safe Ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide focused actions for children. You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. And do you have to sort of, before we get to the, the, the really awful thing about Peter's condition... Do you have a hard time defending his behaviour then? I mean, you, you, you went on loving him. Yes, I did. I, I did have a hard time. You see, I think his family kind of um, knew his behaviour wasn't good and they were a very good family and have always done the right thing. And so he was kind of in bad nick with his family, if you like, and with my own family when they could see that I was... Thing. I, I did have to defend him, but you see, he'd only just have to smile at me and hold out his you hand. Had another and, baby. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Kathy, don't be talking like that. It's the truth, but don't be saying it out loud. But my goodness, he had some fantastic uh, attraction. <laughs> well, he did for me anyway. He clearly. <laughs> so the, during those years, Anne, you survived. We you survived. Worked, you yeah. got children in, you, you had your typewriting business. You actually had a number of small businesses going. Yes, exactly, yes. And did you also get help from outside at that stage? Oh, uh, I had my sister, Agnes. I, I, when I um, first, when Sarah, my eldest, first went to school, I, I said to the uh, nun, what are you going to be teaching her? She said, well, if you want to know that, you'd better go and take instructions. So that's what I did from Sister Agnes, who became my saviour, because Sister Agnes had a big black bag and from which she would produce the odd five-pound note and um, the Sacred Heart Messenger. And uh, I read the Sacred Heart Messenger, but I was so happy with those five-pound notes. It was five pounds with a lot of money yes. that could give me a, a few days' food um, for the children and for us all. So, yes, Sister Agnes was a great help to me. In a, in a way, your story, Anne, is a classic story of, of the Catholic Church. On the one hand, sort of hostile efficiency in, in, in the, at the marriage, and then this lovely this nun angel. with whom you became true friends. Absolutely, friends. Um, and who really stepped up to the mark when you needed her to. But you also recognised that in her, and she saw something special in you. Yes, we were friends. We were just friends. And even when I left Peter that time, uh, she knew I was going. I told her I wouldn't have dreamt of leaving the country without telling her, uh, although she knew it wasn't the right thing to do in, in as much as one is supposed to stay with your husband no matter what. She didn't t She didn't chastise me. She let me off. And then when I came back, she was very glad to see me and I to see her too. So you came back with the eight children and you carried on. And from then on, Anne, you... I mean, I, I do remember that point in the book where you came back uh, you know, as a result of his letters and his singing over the phone and all the rest. But he had done nothing with the house. You came back to an absolutely unprepared yes. house. Absolutely the same as when I left it. Can you believe that? It was three months gone. There was nothing he had done in that house. The letter that I'd left on the table, uh, the article from Mary Kenny that I'd left on the table about alcoholism was still there on the table. Uh, so then, do you know, that that was a time because that wasn't 
look, in inverted commas, normal. Do you know, that was something that really struck me as something really strange because you would have thought, I mean, because he, he was able to do things, you know what I mean? He was able to do things, but I think that was that was a real symbol of what was to come. Do you know the trauma of what happened to him mentally? It, it was a sign. There were signs along the way. But you see, if you're not looking out for those kind of things, you don't see them, Cathy. It's very difficult to really comprehend it. But, you know, but when you look back, you say to yourself, yes, you know, that was it. And you, you, you had no template. At the time, no one talked about mental illness. Not at all. There was, no. Whereas nowadays, we talk of little else quite often. <laughs> yeah, we're all, um, you know, mind doing our mindful things and meditations and talking to one another about our mental health. Well, let's hope we are, because we need to. Mm. But at that stage, and in fact, it was was something to be hushed-hushed, you know. Nobody could really talk about that. It's okay to break your leg, but not to break your head, you know. It's... Indeed. So what was the first sign of this, Anne, that you couldn't ignore, where you thought, this is really yeah. way off the radar yeah. now? and it came, it was quite sudden, really. It, it was one of those things you'll never forget. You know, you have certain things in your life that are vivid in your memory as when they happened. And, and that's uh, this day, he said he had a headache. And I I didn't have any children for some reason that day. And he had nowhere to go. He was out of work. The taxi had gone. And he said he had a headache. I said, I'll go and make some tea. And I went into the kitchen and I came back in with the tea. And he was standing at the window in our house looking out over at the green. We lived on Sandy Mount Green and we had a big, huge window that he'd made when we first moved in there. And he, he was looking out of the window and he said to me, look at all those people in the green, how happy they are. And the sun is shining, it's a lovely day, isn't it great? And I looked over his shoulder and there were no people in the green. It had started to rain. But he was actually seeing things that weren't there. Can you imagine that, Cathy? You're standing beside somebody who is seeing things that really and truly aren't there. And, um, my God, I, I, that, that was a shock. I mean, never mind not knowing what his name was, this was a completely different kind of a shock. And uh, I drew him down the settee and we sat down and drank our tea. And then, of course, I got him to the doctor. And that was the beginning. The doctor... When I spoke to him and we went in together, diagnosed uh, the easiest thing, uh, <laughs> DTs, delirium tremens, you know, that pink because elephant drink thing. Yeah. Yes. It was a drink. Yes. Um, and so he sent him off to the clinic uh, once a week to Dr. Stevens, in, son in um, St. Dimpness in Brendan's, uh, for treatment for that. But, it, of course, that wasn't what was wrong with him. Did you know that at the time? Not at all. I knew nothing about anything. Um I just, I accepted what the doctor said. And when he went to the clinic, he got tablets, which um, would make you very sick if you drank, uh, which he took religiously. And he seemed to be quite happy about it. He seemed to be a different person uh, to, to what he was before. Um, and he started going to mass uh, a lot. Uh, so that was something new because uh, he hadn't really been very religious before that. So that was the start of it. That was the beginning. And did that accelerate quite quickly, Anne? Yes, it did, because after going to the to the um, 
to this clinic for treatment for alcoholism for a few weeks. One day he came home and um, he said to me that um, he had something very important to tell me. And like I'd been used to him coming back from mass these days, kind of wanting to talk about religion. So I said to him, look, Peter, just hold on a minute. The children have got to be fed and we've got to get them to bed and all of that. So I did all those usual things and stalling him until he brought me into the this same front room, my front room of my house where so many terrible things have happened and wonderful things too. Um, and he then told me that he knew that he was Jesus Christ, that Easter was coming, uh, that he would have to make the supreme sacrifice and myself and the children had to go with him and we'd all have to, to die to save the world. So you can imagine, Kathy, what that might have been like for someone to sit beside you and say that this man you loved very much, who looked as normal as you do today and as normal as I hope I do too, but he said all this um, with such conviction and you'd nearly want to believe him because he was so convinced in what he was saying. Of course, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And um, that was... You know, he wanted me to get him a knife, a knife. <laughs> uh, so I was stalling him all the time. And luckily enough, some friends called who wouldn't normally have called at that time of the evening. Nobody ever did. But they, like some miracles, if you'd nearly believe in God, had sent them if you were that way inclined. But these two friends came in and we managed to... One of whom was a psychiatric yeah. nurse by sheer chance. Uh, exactly. Yes. And uh, yes, Mary came in. And she listened to his story, but she didn't have any sedatives with her or anything like that. She she was trying to calm him down. And then the other friend, Audrey, came in and and then he got cross with us all because we weren't really letting him do what he wanted to do. And he started to throw himself at the fireplace, which he did made himself out of rock from Hoth. Um, he kept throwing him until his head was bleeding. And then we managed to subdue him and put the coffee table on top of him and sat on it. And then I got the ambulance, I phoned next, got used the phone next door and he was taken away. So that was the first time he was taken away in the ambulance. The whole of Sandymount knew about it because an ambulance doesn't come into an area without everybody seeing it. Exactly. But you couldn't talk to anyone about it. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, you know, you have to make excuses. You, you just, it, you, it's just, just too um, big to turn around and say, oh, my husband thinks he's God. He just wanted to kill us all so we could all die for you all. You know, I mean, you just can't do that. So there was that thing of being secretive about your husband and what was wrong with him and which hospital he was in, which obviously was St. Brendan's, Grange Gorman, so everybody really knew, but we nobody talked about it. You know, it was just, just one of those things, you know. And you were visiting him up there and, and being continually appalled by the conditions yes, there. Yes, yes. Not so much in the beginning, but... Later on, when he tried to take his own life again and eventually went to the place where they locked you up and threw away the key, that was really, really bad then. Ward 23 was the... I think one of my essays is called Ward 23. That was when it was really at, at its height and very bad. Um, but then uh, he went through all of that and by hook or by crook, because I met a wonderful doctor who changed his medication. He through, actually, a, through a social worker? Through a social worker, yes. I went to the 
to get, I went to get, because I knew he would eventually come out of there because he, I would make sure he came out because I was persisting in trying you to. You were a ferocious advocate in his behalf and some of your letters are in the book. Yes. And they describe brilliantly the conditions, his condition, what you felt should happen. Uh, the, the fact that you have these records is actually fantastic in itself. Yes, yes. But it's, it's a wonderful description of the system as it was then, Anne, but also your your resilience and your determination to get something done for this yes, man. Yes, and I was very lucky to meet that uh, social welfare chap because he was he was just so understanding. As I say in the book, he, he said to me, how are you? And that was the first time anybody had ever asked me how I was, you know, um, and I actually spilled it all out and told him and he could see how distressed I was and I was only there trying to get a bus pass for when Peter eventually did come out, you know, and some uh, disability benefit. Because at this stage, this is what he, he was disabled. It was obvious t- to the world. So um, he gave me the name of this doctor, this man, Dr. Hartman. And do you know what, Kathy? His daughter mentioned it on Instagram the other day that I had written about her father. And I was so touched. I must get in touch with this uh, girl but she had she she obviously read that. But Mr. Hartman, Dr. Hartman, he changed our lives because of the fact he was able to change Peter's medication. And so the last year or so of Peter's life, he was more himself in a way. Never exactly the man he was, but not a man who was suffering from all the side effects of the medication, which were that you shake, that you can't really walk very well. He was more able for life. And um, we even went to knock um, during that time because of the way that his medication had changed. So it was wonderful for me and for the children. That and he, he took an more... interest in nature and was identifying yes. rarish plants. He was, yes. really, really had become a companion to you, exactly. which perhaps and he hadn't been before. Exactly, and a help to me with the children. I was still minding the children. Uh, from other people's children as well as my own. And uh, yes, he was a help to me. He was a help that he'd never been before. So I treasure I treasure that last year uh, of our lives together very much so. You know, and I'd had another baby along the way and little Katie was there. So yeah, it was, it was wonderful. And I, I thought in my naivety that uh, this was going to be good. I could live with this, what I had. He wasn't the man I married, but he was the man I loved and uh, I could live with it until he eventually managed to be so clever that he took his own life um, in the back garden, hanging himself from the apple tree. So actually, and in ironically, he had become quite sane, recognised his own condition, and that it would be a long interesting yes. one and you very much respect his decision yes i do respect his decision um it was his it was his um was kind of a gift to me in a way because i know he was unwell and he couldn't live with himself the way he was but also he continually said to me you'd be better off without me and of course you know when he died there was a big burden lifted from my shoulders although it was a terrible thing to lose the man you love the man you've been with all those years but I do respect what he did if he couldn't take it anymore that was his 
business and he had to do what he had to do. And at the same time, it meant that myself and the children were freed from a handicap. Uh, and that's to be honest with you, Kathy. I didn't feel like that at the time. It took me a few years to come to terms with that. But at the same time, he did it for us. And um, I do respect his decision. I have to say, Anne, that the children may have witnessed things they shouldn't have witnessed. Yeah. Yes. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? Do you mean during the course of his life or... I, I, well, we, we, you've described very honestly the course of his life, but also the circumstances of, of uh, in which he took his own life. Yes, that was, um, you know, I, I remember when I saw him hanging from the tree, I was shouting, don't look out the window. And of course, that was the worst thing I could have done. You know, you've got a house for a children, tell them not to look out the window. But I believe some of them did. But little Michael, um, who was only about five at the time, he he didn't he was unaware until in the street some days after somebody told Michael what happened to his daddy and so that was all. Yes, the 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 not only that the actual tragic day of his going, but also coming up to that when he was sick, you know, that they had to watch and witness a man disintegrating before their eyes, you know. A man who had always been great fun, you know, they they had had fun with like you know even though he wasn't the great provider he was always up for the laugh and for the song and all of that you know and passed on his gifts to his he did he at passed least some on of his... the children that I've met Roisin yes uh, is most of all but then they're all they've all can sing an air but she's the best of the lot of them Roisin can sing very much like he did and her children too have got wonderful voices so. They're always alive uh, for me. Uh, he is always alive for me whenever I hear that. So, Anne, you, you, you're right that you, you, you attacked your grief. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> well, I attacked my grief because um, there was no way that uh, I was going to um, let it get me down. Um, my eight children were so special to me. And um, also, I was a young, vibrant young woman and... Uh, I was only 40 and 41, and I wasn't going to let life pass me by, so I kept going, Kathy. And that's the thing about the book. Um, you see, you, up until now we've been talking, it, it sounds as if it's all tragedy, but it wasn't because the way I wrote the book, I, I would, in between, tell all the other great things that have happened to me since And I Peter would like died. to emphasise that over and over. The structure of the book is wonderful in that none of this is one long narrative of tragedy. It is interspersed with great joy and, and, and curiosity. And you're... You're a very unique perspective, Anne Ingle. You know, having come from England, your view of Ireland... And really, I don't think you've gone, we've gone enough at all into the culture shock, but we haven't time, unfortunately, because I've kept you talking about so much else. But tell us a little bit about what happened in the years afterwards, you, how you attacked the grief. First of all, actually, there are funny things about sex in the book, which I don't think would have been written by an Irish woman. Um, yes, yes. Certainly not even now. <laughs> well, you see, I think people are too shy about sex. <laughs> I know Roisin hates it. So when, I mean, the, oh, yes. When I mean She's the, actually left the table. <laughs> when I'm in the book club, she is always um, get, getting across with me for saying things about sex on books. But I do, I, I honestly believe that it's one of the most joyful things in life, I think, anyway. So when I was writing 
the book. I knew I had to be honest about that. I was honest. I'm honest all the way through the book. So why should I stop being honest when it comes to sex? And so, like, I did go out with different men. I had some long, long, longish term relationships and some flings and one night stands and all sorts of bad things like that. But by this stage, I'd caught up on the whole contraception thing. There was no way I was going to have any children by anybody else. So that was okay. But um, yes, I write about that uh, in that particular essay, Smelling of Scones, because it was a very strange thing that happened to me. I'd gone out for an evening with a girlfriend, a woman friend, and uh, we had gone into a pub. There's a Kitty O'Shea's uh, it was a new pub that had been opened. She said, this is the place, everybody's going here. So there I was up at the bar, drinking my gin and tonic, feeling very good, and this nice man talking to me. And then he looked at me strangely and he said, you smell of scones. And I was quite taken aback. And then, of course, I remembered I hadn't had time for a shower before I came out. And uh, I had been baking all the afternoon for the girl guides. Did he say it like it was a good thing? No, not really. It was kind of a bit perplexed. I think, you know, he wasn't used to having women in the bar smelling of scones. But anyway, that was the kind of thing that happened. I met men and I I enjoyed myself and I had a good time in that way. And I don't think it impinged too much on the the children. Mind you, some of the gentlemen I brought home, some of the children didn't like. um, But um, that's beside (laughs) the point. That's their business. But mostly... um, Mostly it was good, and I enjoyed myself. And so that's one Tell essay. Tell us about the summer in Mykonos and the caravan. Oh, yes, poor Paddy. Do you know that? I don't think poor Paddy at all, but anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> poor everybody else, I think. <laughs> yeah, I had this relationship with Paddy. Uh, he, he was a man who loved fast cars and jewellery and very ostentatious and thought he was the bee's knees and everything like that. And, and he uh, he was living in Mykonos because he'd been sick and they advised him to get uh, go to a place where it was warm. And I took a sabbatical from work for three months to go out with him. I took two of my youngest children with me. And uh, it was wonderful, like, being out there. But when you're living with somebody on a beach in Mykonos for three months, you really get so to know them. a sweltering summer. Yes, you really get to know them, you know. And uh, one evening he went out with his pitchfork around the... Um, the caravan, uh, because he'd heard the, the, the campers making noises and he didn't want that. He wanted to get to sleep. He had to get up in the morning and drive people to the from the ferry and back again. So out he went with his pitchfork. And I was in the caravan terrified that he was going to kill somebody. And after that, I very quickly got home and I also then uh, stopped the relationship. Got a barring order against him. <laughs> I didn't have to do that. And what was he wasn't actually living with us full time. It was only in the caravan that I really got to know him. But also that man phoned me up on my birthday this year. Did he? He phones you up every year on my birthday. He's living in Spain now. Can I just ask what, of... was he, what he was doing with the pitchfork? He was trying to stop people. No, and those... no, why did he have a pitchfork? Oh, because the, the pitchfork place. was just hanging. It was just sitting beside... You know, the caravan, I mean, right. it's all different. It wasn't there especially to kill That's people. The thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're still friends, yes, and he's currently reading the book. I don't know what he's going to think when he comes to that paragraph. He's going to love it. <laughs> he's going to dine out on this for the rest of his life. And there's no question and the other about man, it. And the other man I wrote about who, who lives in the mountain in Tipperary, he phoned me this week as well. He's read the book. And he said, you know, I still love you, Anne. 
you know, we were never meant to be. No, I certainly we weren't, uh, John. I said, but you know, thanks for loving me anyway. So you know, so I must have had an impact on these people. I never thought of myself as a real femme fatale, but do you know when I think back? Maybe I was a bit of that. There's no you question know. you have all these men suddenly <laughs> jumping out from various parts of the world to say how much they love you. And the book really is, as, as everybody will have gathered by now, a story of absolute survival and resilience and all of those things. And how you, just to sum up what you were doing um, in those years afterwards, you finally got into Trinity after knocking on that door for years. I did. That was wonderful, wasn't it? They you got your degree. I got my degree. You kept up the secretarial work. You got immersed in technology and you were on Twitter before Roshi. Roshi. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it, it's astonishing what you achieved. In the meantime, you had these eight children all going out into the world. Yes. And one of the things that I loved in the book uh, was you, you, our number of letters are reproduced uh, from from um, from Rachel, uh, who was heading off to Edinburgh, I think. Yes, he was. And one from Michael, which won five hundred pounds on the Gay Barn Show exactly. for letters from abroad. Yes. And were these were these things, Anne, that 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 sort of made you think? I think you're by nature an optimist, anyway, and you're a tremendously cheerful woman. But all this tragedy, also, in 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 the in parked there in places in your head were these letters terribly important to you yes very important because I had to they they whatever men might have come and gone my children were were, were there for me all the time and even today they are just wonderful I have one essay in the book where I talk about my two birthdays that they did the 70th and the 80th which do you know, there's not many families could have gone to that extreme. And they were just wonderful. They are just wonderful people, you know. So they those letters were very important to me. Um, when they went away, I missed them. And uh, still to this day, I'm, I get phone calls and emails from them. And, yeah, it's great. The ones that are not beside me, close to me, you know. So, yeah, they, they were very important, Cathy, very important. And actually, your, your, um, your acknowledgements are... Delightful. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned that Roshin is sitting here at the table with us and her expressions are actually a sight to behold, <laughs> even though she knows all of this already. <laughs> but I think one of the things, Anne, just moving moving on to lockdown and how you responded to that. Um, at one point you rang, you rang Senior Line. Oh, I did. That was the most amazing. It was a really funny thing. Well, you're very low at the time, though. I was really low. And I, I don't know, like, everything was going wrong. The crossword wouldn't work out. The poetry man was supposed to ring me with a, with a poem and he hadn't rung. Poetry Island had this thing going, you know. And uh, I couldn't go out for a walk because they wouldn't let you out. And I went to have coffee with Katie, my, my, who I live with. And uh, I said, she said, well, Mum, she said, senior line, ring them up. I said, senior, me ringing senior line? What do you think? Yes, she said, you should. They'll cheer you up. So I rang this senior line, which is a wonderful organisation. And the lady was so nice. And she listened to me twittering on about all these things that were going wrong in my life. And then she said, excuse me, do you have a subscription to the Irish Times? I said, yes, I do. Uh, but you know, there's a wonderful woman there who's writing, journalist called Roisin Ingle, and she's writing some wonderful pieces about how we get through lockdown. I think you should read them. Well, you can imagine, Cathy, what I was like at the other end of the phone. I didn't, know what, I didn't know whether to laugh, cry, or what to do. I just, uh, 
Yes, I said. Do you know some of those uh, pieces? I read them before you even do because you said them to me. So when I phoned up Roisin, we had she wasn't in great form that day either for some reason, and she needed to answer the phone to me because she was so fed up. But she, when I told her, she'd laugh so much, and of course she got a column out of it, Kathy. You know, <laughs> of course she did. I remember as well, um, and it was one of her columns actually that led directly to this book. It's it's, it's worth pointing out. Yes, but and it's I, I also think one of the things that were well worth reading, <laughs> worth reading in the book was how you described you know how you uh, you, you kept a diary uh, and uh, you know food was a constant. You had your yes. angry child phase. You had your hopeful phase. Yes. Day ninety nine when you're out visiting. Um, so all of that, and I recommend all of this to to readers um, because the book really it's, it 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 just veers into all sorts of interesting territory. But one of the things that fascinated me at my age and with two daughters in the thirties is multi generational living. How you have come through these years with declining eyesight. Uh, with your numerous slips and falls. And I, have oh, yes, to, I have to say, I did snort laughing when I read that you had gone in to visit Roshan in the maternity hospital in a wheelchair because you just had a fall. Yes. I, I, you, 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 it's the way you tell it. It actually wasn't <laughs> funny, but it's the way you told it. Um, tell us about multi-generational living. Yeah, it's amazing. I got into it by accident, really, because it was they came to live with me in the beginning because I was living in an apartment and they came... Who were they? This is Katie and Killian. Uh, Kate is my youngest daughter, and her, her, they weren't actually married when they first came, but they were trying to save up to get a deposit on a house. And they said to me, could they come? And I said, sure, sure. I'd had others. I mean, others of them had stayed, like Roshin and Johnny and somebody, uh, Aoife and Pete. They'd all had a go at staying in the spare bedroom in this um, two-bedroom apartment. So I said, of course you can. And from then on, we uh, stayed together. And when they moved to different digs, I moved with them. And finally, they bought the house in Vipsborough and it was accepted that I would be part of the family. So I have this lovely room at the front of the house with everything I need in it, everything I need, nothing. And they made a special bathroom for me under the stairs. So I just slipped from my front room under the stairs to go to the bathroom and have my showers. And uh, it's actually working very well. I mean, from my point of view, and I don't think they mind at all because uh, now and again they, they'll go out you know when the children are all in bed they might say oh we're going for a date to Lidl or something I mean how, how you could go for a date to Lidl but I mean they do that they say that's a date night to Lidl so off they go um, so they get that part but apart from that I have my own life I have that little room and it's my room I've got my computer there I wrote the book there and I have this a giant little, tv screen Giant, because I can't see my little laptop, so I have this big television. It's enormous. Uh, that's my screen for my laptop. And Killian is great at technology, so if anything goes wrong, he's always there. Katie is really good at cooking, so she cooks all my dinners. And since I've had this latest fall with the wrist, I haven't cooked a meal. So, my God, I'm really being looked after. But it's just, they like me being there, and I love the children. I've got little Mihal, who's only three, who loves me Nearly as much as he loves his mum and dad. Don't oh, say that out no, loud. But he just loud. loves me so much. And he's, he's very loving. And so for me, it, it's everything I need. Do you know what now, I mean? Anne, just to get slightly nitty gritty for a second, because okay. it is so fascinating. You contribute rent. Oh, I do. I pay a, a stipend or whatever you like. To a call stipend. It, uh, which covers my electricity, my food and everything, you know. Okay. Um, 
Now, the bit that actually really fascinates me, because I, my mother-in-law lived with us for a while. We lived with her and then it ended up yeah. us living with something somewhat similar. But I will be honest with you, if I came home from work in the evening after a hard day and a sweltering hour in the bus or whatever, and I found my mother-in-law rooting around the cooker in the, my kitchen, it would have driven me demented. She yeah. was the most wonderful woman, but my goodness, I did find it hard. Yeah. Now, how do you and Katie... And Killian worked this out. Well, I don't know. I think I think it's a lot down to Killian, because Killian actually likes me very much. I mean, you've no idea about this book how enthusiastic he is about me. He said, "Are you are you number fifth this week again?" And like you know, he's looking at the Nielsen things, or I'm not even bothered about any of that. But he is so kind and loving towards me. He really gets me, and he likes me. I mean. I'm lying in bed every morning and that cup of tea comes beside me. I don't even get out of the bed. I get the cup of tea in bed every morning from him, not from Katie. Mind you, Katie loves me too, I'm sure. I mean, I know that she does and she cooks my dinners every evening and I get on great with her. But I think if it wasn't for him being so uh, on the same kind of wavelength as me, it might not have worked. So I think it's very important for the partner of your daughter. And I don't know, I... I don't really get in the way. I mean, I go into my room and I stay there. I mean, after we've had our dinner, they wouldn't know I was even... So you do dine there. with them? Oh, we eat together. Yes. And then I go. Okay. I don't hang around. I don't hang around. I just get out of the way. And if we have any disagreements, I try not to interfere with whatever the disagreements they might have because yes. that's very important, not to interfere. Mm. I think that's very important. And if I, when I am cooking, I, I haven't cooked just recently because of my hand, my wrist, but when I am cooking, I have my designated days to do that. So they know, and I'm sure Katie will be very relieved when this wrist gets better, <laughs> that I start, you know, doing a bit more cooking because K- Killian keeps saying, we haven't had bacon and cabbage lately because that's the thing that I do, you know, the old bacon and cabbage. So yes, but apart from that, I think it's a wonderful way to live. For me, I'm so happy. I really am so happy. And I have the children, you know, the grandchildren. And I can't think of any better way to live. Okay, give us one, your big tip for living with your daughter-in-law, son, or whatever. whatever. Keep your mouth shut. Do you know, don't be talking when you don't have to. Just take a little step back, you know, and have a bit of respect for their... For their lives and as they do yours. So now I'm not wanting to be insensitive, but we're all getting <laughs> what old. Gonna, what are you going to say now? And you discuss these this this very very uh, deeply in the book about what you intend to do about your funeral. Yes, and you changed your mind three times. I did there indeed. There was a big funeral with all the friends. <laughs> there was a minimalist one, and now you're on to a different track. Yes, I'm giving my body for. How what it'll be like at the age of 100, when I hope to last to 100, uh, is going to the College of uh, Surgeons. Um, because the, I don't want any... I don't want any money spent on it, you know. You, they have a scheme where you... I have already organised it. You just phone up and they take your body away. So nobody has to worry about coffins or funerals. But I would like to think that they might have a bit of a hoolie. And I think they will. As Sarah said to me, it's nothing got to do with you what happens when you die. So just keep get back in your box. Well, not the box, because I'm not <laughs> getting back in the box. But you know what I mean. Um, 
So, yeah, so that's what's going to happen in the end. Uh, Get back in your box, Anne Ingle. I never heard such a thing. That's not going to happen. I, I think you'll still be out of the box even then. Um, but it was, so, so that's, your, that's your, your final decision. And, and I think at one point you, you mentioned that, that um, you, you, you have to be a certain weight. Yes. A certain conditions. I, I, there was a bit of condition there about obesity. So I'm trying to make sure I keep under that level. I, I might have to check that up because, you know, the COVID, I think everybody, the lockdowns, people put on weight, didn't they? There's the COVID stone. <laughs> COVID stone oh, is something stone called. in my case. <laughs> um, finally, Anne, uh, Roshan has just handed me a plate and on it is written, I don't do fear. Tell us about that before we finish. Yeah, that's a funny thing, isn't it? A few years ago, a man called Joe Donnelly in the Fair Play Cafe was having some kind of a seminar and he he asked me along to say a few words, which I'm always amazed when people want me to say a few words. But anyway, I, I went along and I, I did say a few words about whatever the subject was. And uh, then the que- they started, people asked questions and someone said to me, are you afraid for the future? And I said, I don't do fear. Quite off the cuff, because I, I don't see the sense in fearing things until they happen. I, I don't do fear, I said. Uh, and Joe, apparently, this must have been about five or six years ago, it, it stayed in his mind. And he came with this little plate the other day with the words, I don't do fear on it. Because he said it got him through lots of things that have happened in his life. And he's had a few bad things happen. And then the COVID came. But he said it really helped him and he never forgot it. So I don't know. It was an inspiration for him. Maybe if we all say you don't do fear and just get on with it, it might be better off. I don't know. I'm just saying that's what I said at the time. And I I don't really, I'm not really afraid of very much at all because sure, when you get to my age, you've seen it all. So what's the point, you know? I suppose part of the problem, Anne, is as you get older, bad things happen and you become less optimistic. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I tried. Yeah, I don't really get up. And I mean, I went yesterday to the man who was um, who was the physiotherapist for my wrist, and he said, "Now get your walking stick and twist it around." So here I am, like a majorette, going around the place with the uh, doing the exercise with the arm. But you know, it's a joke. Everything's. Well, you can make a joke out of everything, can't you, really? Or make well, that's happiness. very good wrist-twisting action you have going on there. I'm, it doesn't look like you ever did anything to it. Anne Ingle, you are an inspiration. Oh, Cathy, no, don't be saying that. And anybody who writes a book has my huge respect. Me anybody too. Anybody who starts I, I a book and finishes it has my enormous <laughs> respect. I don't care what kind of a book it is. I can't but believe I read it. I wonderful. wrote the book anyway. It just happened I, from January to April. I sat down and did it. And it's still really amazing. And it's still amazing to me how much people have said they liked it. I, I mean, I'm so, I'm, I'm just about come to terms with the fact that it's good. Isn't that the best thing <laughs> you ever heard? For a woman to say something like that about herself is just the best thing the women's podcast could hear. <laughs> Anne Ingle, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Roisin Ingle, for You're having welcome. us in your lovely kitchen <laughs> and for the coffee. Um, and it's just been all around a lovely morning. Thank you so much, Cathy. It's my pleasure.
That was Anne Ingle and Cathy Sheridan there. I was delighted to host them both and the book is called Open Hearted and it's in all good bookshops now. Thanks to both of them. That's all we have time for. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at IT Women's Podcast. We're on email to thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> 